Welcome to this Vetfolio podcast brought to you in part by DECRA. We're pleased that you decided to join us as we explore the topic of treatment of Addisonian crisis with our guest speaker, Dr. Patty Lathan. Please note, the information provided in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you in your practice. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vetfolio or its sponsors. Now let's dive into the session with Dr. Lathan. Hello, and thank you for joining me today for a discussion on Addisonian crisis. My name is Patty Lathan, and I'm coming to you from the great sunny state of Mississippi today. I already talked about how to treat patients with chronic signs of hypoadrenocorticism, so today, again, I'm going to address Addisonian crisis more directly. And also, we kind of discuss Addisonian presentations separately as acute or crisis and chronic disease. The disease is really a continuum, so some dogs will have mild to moderate chronic GI signs, and others will present in hypovolemic shock with severe hyperkalemia and quite ready to die with no apparent history of gastrointestinal signs. The vast majority of the dogs actually fall somewhere in the middle, and not every single patient that we see that comes in and needs, for example, intravenous fluids will also need directed therapy for, say, hyperkalemia. So today, instead of going through kind of a lecture format on Addisonian crisis, I decided that I wanted to kind of work through a hypothetical textbook case that might present to an emergency hospital. So for this situation, put on your imaginoscope and imagine that we're in an emergency clinic with 24-hour facilities. It's really, really well equipped, and you have all the technicians you need. It's like a four-to-one technician-doctor ratio. I, I realize this is the ideal world and not in reality, but we're going to assume this for now. So everything that we want done is going to happen pretty much instantaneously. So it's around 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night, and a youngish, yellow, male-neutered, golden doodle or labradoodle, something or other, rolls back to the treatment room on a gurney. All you know at this point is that the owners came home from work, and they found him collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. They brought him straight in. You look at him initially, and he's pretty thin. It may be a body condition score of 2 out of 5. Maybe he weighs about 30 kgs, but he looks so crappy and obtunded that you don't actually put him on the scale. Then you also know that there's some melanin or fecal staining around his anus. You check his temperature. It's 97.5 degrees. His pulse is 60, and it's pretty weak. His respiratory rate is about 16 per minute, and his heart and lungs sound fine. You get your technicians going, and they honestly are pretty much on autopilot. They check a blood pressure, and a systolic blood pressure about 70 millimeters mercury. His ECG, you know, you're working on your emergency ECG. If you're anything like me, this would be the case where you're kind of looking at T-waves and going, hmm, they might be a little bit tall and spiky, but they might not. I'm not quite sure. But then you look at the P-waves, and you're pretty sure the P-waves look relatively flattened. They're there, but you're getting a little nervous. You're like, hmm, I don't really like that. And you're a little suspicious right now for why is this dog that looks like it's in hypovolemic shock? Why why does this dog have a heart rate of 60? That's kind of weird. In the meantime, you do a fast scan for fluid and you find free fluid in the abdomen or thorax and you find absolutely none. And then as the techs put in the intravenous catheter so you can start bolusing some fluids, they also draw blood for an ISAT. At this point, we address the hypovolemia with your normal 5 mil per kg head and starch bolus concurrent with about a 20 mil per kg bolus of crystalloid fluids 
just wide open while you're waiting for the ISTAT PCB and blood glucose to come back. I said we'll be using crystalloid fluids, and obviously at this point, we don't really know what's going on with the dog. We're kind of suspecting hyperkalemia a little bit, but, you know, we just go ahead and grab the our general fluid of choice, which in this case we're going to say is lactated ringers. So we get back a little bit of blood work. Again, everything's instantaneous in this imaginary hospital. And the PCD is 35. The total protein is around, say, 5. So the dog's mildly anemic, but you're like, hmm, dog's in hypovolemic shock. That's kind of interesting. Plus, it's got some melanin, so maybe that's going to go down later. And the blood glucose is 63. Now, that's not like a blood glucose that's freaking us out too badly, but at the same time, you're like, well, I don't really like that. So you go ahead and give a mil per kg of 50% dextrose diluted one-to-one with saline. Just kind of address that hypoglycemia in case it's causing a problem. Then you get your ice sat back. Your potassium's 10.2, your sodium's 115, your bicarb's 13, the pH is 7.15, and ionized calcium is 1.5, at which point you, perhaps under your breath or not quite under your breath, let out a few expletives because that potassium is in the oh crap range and you're afraid the animal's going to die, which is kind of confirming why your P waves were flattened and at that point you're pretty convinced that that T wave was spiked and it wasn't just your imagination. So given how high that potassium is, along with those ECG changes, you're like, oh, my God, I need to treat that potassium now. Otherwise, this animal is going to die. So you start off by giving them something that will at least stabilize the heart while your IV fluids take effect. So we go ahead and give them a 10 mil bolus, and I say bolus, it's a bolus over 15 minutes with the ECG hooked up, of calcium gluconate. Generally, we we say to watch the ECG as we give the calcium gluconate because the side effect of too rapid calcium administration is bradycardia, which always makes me laugh with these Addisonians. I, I watch the ECG. Of course, I've already got them hooked up in these crises, so it's not that big of a deal. So you've got somebody pushing this calcium gluconate slowly over 15 minutes while monitoring the ECG, which you're doing anyway. And again, keep in mind, this calcium gluconate is not going to actually decrease the potassium. However, it'll try and keep your heart functioning while the other therapies have a chance to kick in. Also keep in mind that in dogs, we want to make sure we use calcium gluconate and not calcium chloride, as the calcium chloride can be pretty caustic to their poor little veins. So at this point, you're like, all right, got the calcium gluconate going. Our fluids are going. We're giving lactated ringers, which... You know, I'm not going to go into too much fluid of choice. People say in textbooks and such with Addison that you want to give sodium chloride because you're going to replace the sodium. But honestly, you don't want to increase the sodium too quickly. This dog had a sodium of 115. You don't want to increase the sodium more than 12 milliequivalents per day for 24-hour period. So I'm pretty content with using lactated ringers. It's only got 130 milliequivalents per liter of sodium. Um, so I'm going to keep with that. If you ended up had started with saline or you had started with plasma, I think either of them would be fine solutions for this animal. And depending on the particular situation, sometimes I use any of those three. But we'll go ahead and keep with lactated ringers in this dog. So, again, we got the lactated ringers going. We got the calcium going. And you still are pretty worried this animal is going to die on you any second. So you give the R insulin to drive the potassium into the cells. You'd already given glucose earlier. However, at this point, I'm a little worried that this much insulin might cause a little hypoglycemia. 
So I go ahead and give another bolus of dextrose, and I'll add dextrose to the lactated ringers to make the lactated ringers a 5% dextrose solution. Keep in mind, you don't want to put these animals on D5W because once the dextrose is utilized, then that fluid will turn hypotonic and go extravascularly. So make sure that instead of getting D5W, you just spike crystalloid fluid with dextrose. So at this point, you're like, all right, well, we got insulin going. That should pretty much push the potassium into cells very quickly, so say over within about 15 minutes or so. Okay, so at this point, we've already given insulin and dextrose. You've got the calcium gluconate on board trying to protect the heart. And, you know, if we wanted to, we could go ahead and give bicarbonate. Bicarbonate will decrease the acidosis in the body, and then because of that, then the potassium will go intercellularly as acid comes into the intravascular space. I'm not a huge fan of using bicarbonate in animals that are hyperkalemic because of the fact that bicarbonate can have some negative effects in debilitating animals on their, on its own. So if you're a huge user of bicarbonate, that's fine. I just, again, am not, not a huge fan of it. If I were going to use it, I would probably wait till the pH were at least less than 7.1 or so in a dog. And this guy started out at 7.15. So Probably wouldn't have pulled my trigger point yet. Honestly, I've never used bicarbonate to treat hyperkalemia because I can generally address it pretty adequately using the insulin and dextrose along with the calcium gluconate. So at this point, we're going to reassess the dog. You look at the dog and you're like, all right, well, we got the first fluid bolus in. We got the insulin in. We got the dextrose in. We're going to check the blood pressure, blood glucose, and potassium again. That blood pressure has actually increased to about 90 millimeters per mercury systolic. The blood glucose is now 180, not surprisingly, given all the dextrose you've just given. The sodium went up a titch to 118, not too worried about that. And the pH is 7.25. So you're like, um, all right, we're doing a little bit better. Then you look at the ECG. The T waves don't look quite as tall as they had. So right now you're convinced, yep, they were absolutely tall earlier due to hyperkalemia. And the P waves are much more noticeable now. They're not nearly as flattened. The heart rate is 120. And the dog's looking at you. You're suspecting this dog's got a little bit of Labrador in him because his tail's trying to twitch a little bit, but doesn't quite have the Labrador wag down quite yet. So at this point, your respiratory rate and heart rate actually decrease because you're thinking, all right, well, this dog's a little bit more stable than it had been. However, the blood pressure is still a little bit low, so you go ahead and give another bolus of 10 mils per kg of lactated ringers. And you're like, all right, well, let's get some diagnostics going in this dog. So you draw some blood for a CBC chem to be submitted tomorrow morning. You're also like, okay, well, we didn't get urine earlier because I was trying to save the dog's life. It would have been ideal, but, you know, sometimes ideal didn't actually happen. So you collect a sample to check the urine-specific gravity later on as well. Now, around now, fortunately, this dog's doing better, and the tech returns with the history, since you didn't really get one initially. The dog's name is Brody. Brody is a two-year-old male-neutered Labradoodle. He's had a bit of diarrhea over the past few days. Not really bad, just a couple of events outside. They went to the veterinarian. They got some metronidazole, and donors didn't really think much of it after that. In the past year, he's had a few episodes of vomiting on and off that were treated symptomatically. And you know he's a Labradoodle, and all the breeders in the area swear that Labradoodles just sometimes have gut problems. So that's just something we're not going to worry about too much. 
otherwise, Brody's been a pretty normal dog. They particularly love this dog. You know, they went for the Labradoodle because they were like, okay, well, maybe adding that Labrador into the poodle part will tame down his activity level. And sure enough, this dog's pretty laid back, has been pretty laid back all of his life, so they're thinking that poodle actually worked to tame the Labrador in him. So now the dog's stabilizing. You're like, all right, well, what's causing the problems here? So obviously the biggest problem in this dog when he presented, and because it has some of the fewest differential diagnoses, I'd attack the hyperkalemia and hyponatremia and look at those differential diagnoses. So obviously because I'm giving a talk on Addisonian crisis, Addison's is pretty high up there on a differential list, also given the history of chronic GI signs and the breed. We've certainly seen some Labradoodles and Golden Doodles with Addison's down here in Mississippi, and I'm guessing that in other parts of the country where Labradoodles and Golden Doodles are even more common, you've seen more of them. Acute renal failure should also be on the rule-out list for hyperkalemia and hyponatremia. However, animals with acute renal failure that are hyperkalemic and hyponatremic generally are going to be anuric or alluric. So since this dog was producing a large amount of urine, I'm going to rule out acute renal failure right there. I'll keep it in the back of my mind, but I'm really not going to focus on it. Then, because this dog's had some diarrhea as well, whipworms are on the rule-out list, but after talking to the owner, you do realize that the dog has been on a heartworm preventative that should have been treating the whipworms or preventing the whipworms, but we go ahead and leave it on the rule-out list. We do a fecal, and the fecal comes back instantaneously, and it's negative. And then abdominal effusion or thoracic effusion can also cause hyponatremia or hyperkalemia. However, you didn't see any on the FAST scan. So you go and you talk to the owners and you talk to them about the differentials and you're like, well, Addison's is really high on my list. I think that's probably what's going on, but it'd be nice to rule out concurrent gastrointestinal disease at the same time. So they agree to let you take radiographs of the abdomen, which you do, and you find a lot of gas in the abdomen, which you're not too surprised about given the dogs had diarrhea, but you haven't found any evidence of an obstruction that would lead you away from Addison's. And this is kind of important because I have had one patient present that I really was suspecting had Addison's. This dog had a sodium of like 115 or 120, and uh, he had a lot of gas in the intestines. And it turned out this dog that I thought had Addison's actually had a corn cob stuck in his intestines. So keep in mind that gastrointestinal disease can also cause hyponatremia and hyperkalemia to some extent. But in this dog named Brody, he didn't have that problem. So because you've ruled out the major differential diagnoses of renal disease, significant gastrointestinal disease, and whipworms, you decide, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and give him some glucocorticoids for supplementation, and then we're going to do an ACTH stimulation test. And this is all a common question I get. It's when do I actually pull the trigger on glucocorticoids? Because we don't want to pull it too soon. We've been taught, of course, that... You don't want to give steroids to a dehydrated animal with GI disease because it could cause GI ulcers. But at the same time, if you have a dog with Addison's, you don't want to withhold the glucocorticoids. So I don't really have a great answer. My decision is based completely on my index of suspicion. If I had a predisposed breed present with significant hyperkalemia and hyponatremia and GI signs, and I went ahead and did radiographs and didn't find any other significant problems, I'd go ahead and give steroids. So my glucocorticoid of choice is dexamethasone. 
So I'll give them an initial dose of 0.25 mg per kg, which is about a 2 mg per kg prednisone equivalent, which is about 10 times the physiologic dose of prednisone. Over the next few days, usually I switch them over to prednisone as soon as they start eating. I'll probably give them a mg per kg of pred per day for a couple days after that. And then I end up sending them home on 0.5 mg per kg of pred per day until I taper them down to their maintenance dose, which I talk about more in the podcast on chronic hypodrenocorticism. On top of giving the dexamethasone in this dog, I already mentioned that we do an ACTH stimulation test, and that's absolutely fine after you give dexamethasone. Make sure you don't do an ACTH stim test within 12 hours giving prednisone, because that prednisone will cross-react with cortisol assay. At the same time, of course, I'm going to be providing supportive therapy for this dog. I'll start them on gastroprotectants. My gastroprotectant of choice is now IV pantoprazole, which is really, it's kind of like giving an IV formulation of omeprazole. And, you know, we'd have some debate about this in our hospital, but I'd probably go ahead and give them some unison since there's melanin. I'm concerned about bacterial translocation from the GI tract. However, acknowledge that the next day, if there are any internists in your clinic, they're going to be debating back and forth whether unison should have been given or not. I probably would have given it, and I'm fine with it, but other people might not. Overnight in this dog, I'm going to continue monitoring the blood glucose initially every couple of hours, then every six hours until I can discontinue the dextrose and the fluids. Probably keep them on twice-maintenance LRS. You know, we've already given them 30 mils per kg of lactate ringers. I think we've corrected his dehydration. And as I said, you can debate the fluid of choice, but lactate ringers I think is perfectly fine in this dog. We already checked the electrolytes right after we did the fluid resuscitation and found the potassium was improving and the sodium had been increasing a little bit. At this point, I just want to keep checking the electrolytes until the potassium is normal, and I want to check it every 12 hours or so to make sure that the sodium isn't increasing too quickly. We want to keep it from increasing any more than 12 mil equivalents per day because if we increase it more than 12 mil equivalents per day, then you could actually get what we call myelinolysis. So the, if the tonicity of or osmolality of the blood is higher than the osmolality of the brain, then it will basically suck out free fluid from inside the neurons, and that will cause them to shrivel up or, again, myelinolysis. So we'll try to avoid that. The next morning, we check the electrolytes about 12 hours after we started everything. Potassium is down to 6.5. The sodium was up to about 123, so it's not uncommon to overcorrect a little bit. Remember, it started out 115, so you increased it by 8 over 12 hours. We shouldn't have really corrected it more than 6 over 12 hours. Hopefully, you won't have any problems from that. I just don't want to increase way too fast. We also go ahead and check the hematocrit, and it's 20%, but the dog has had a lot of melana, and I'm a little worried that it's going to keep dropping. So we'll keep checking the hematocrit at least every 12 hours for the next few days while the dog's hospitalized and make sure he doesn't need a transfusion. And in the morning when we're looking at this dog, he's looking a lot brighter. His tail is actually starting to wag like a Labrador is supposed to. I'm not saying poodles don't wag their tails, but Labradors do a little bit more. And, again, the Labrador is kicking in or maybe the dexamethasone, and he's interested in food the next morning. So that next morning we go ahead and transfer him to, to the IM service or the referring veterinarian and you get back a report that says that they checked the serum chemistry, the CBC, 
in the ACTH stem, and they came back as compatible with Addison's disease. So the referring veterinarian gave this dog some DOCP and sent it home on prednisone therapy probably about three days after the dog presented. In my history, in my experience, these dogs in Addisonian crisis stay in the hospital at least a few days while I'm monitoring their PCV and such. This is a dog who, when his PCV got down to 20, it wouldn't have been wrong to pull the trigger to give a blood transfusion, but he apparently stabilizes over the next three days, and you don't have to do that. I'm going to base my decision of whether to give a blood transfusion at this point on how the dog looks clinically. All right, so that's the end of this podcast. For summary, remember the first priority in treating an Addisonian crisis is to give them IV fluids to address the hypovolemia and the acidosis, and it will also address the hyperkalemia. And then we direct our therapy at the life-threatening problems significantly, the hyperkalemia and hypoglycemia, which, again, they can kill the patient pretty quickly. After we address the hypovolemia, the hyperkalemia, and the acidosis and the hypoglycemia, which will kill the patient, we'll talk about addressing the glucocorticoid deficit and provide supportive therapy. When to give the glucocorticoids varies. When to pull the trigger is sometimes debated. But again, when I have a high enough index of suspicion that I think that Addison's is pretty likely, I'll go ahead and give one dose of dexamethasone. I don't give DOCP until the diagnosis is confirmed with an ACTH stimulation test because I'm trying not to increase the sodium too quickly. And DOCP is pretty expensive, so I prefer not to give it until I know that the absolute diagnosis. All right. Thank you guys for joining us for this podcast. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts on Addison's and also the web conference. Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. We hope that you found the information shared in this session useful. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, please be sure to check out related programs, which you can access from vetfolio.com. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Decra, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session and other topics you'd like to hear on future podcasts. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via support at vetfolio.com.